0: You are now listening to the Bishop Stortford Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. Today's Lent reflection builds on what was said in last week's talk, and I'm not going to go over that again. I'm going to assume that you have listened to that. So I start today with reading Psalm 78. Listen, dear friends, I'm reading again in the message. Listen, dear friends, to God's truth. Bend your ears to what I tell you. I'm chewing on the morsel of a proverb. I'll let you, I'll let you in on the old, sweet old truths, stories you heard from our fathers, counsel we learned at our mother's knee. We're not keeping this to ourselves. We're passing it along to the next generation. God's fame and fortune, this marvelous, the marvelous things he has done. When you go back to the early days of Israel with Moses in the wilderness and God forming his people as they've come out of Egypt, um, in Exodus chapter 20, you have Moses, um, God speaking to him, giving him what we now know and call the Ten Commandments. Um, You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. The second one, verse 4 to 6, is clear and explicit instruction for Israel not to have what were known as graven images, not to produce idols that were painted or sculpted like the tribes and nations around them. And although that was prohibited for them, throughout Israel's history, there's been vivid poetry, biblical language that is systematically encouraging of, of a witness that uses a kaleidoscope of various different images and metaphors to describe how God is, who he is, how he works with his people. And so the scriptures call almost endless attention to the power of God's word and the word itself, uh, whether it's the prophets, the psalmists, the apostles, uh, letters written by various different people. It stirs up Uh, a kind of mental imagery, an imagination, if you like, of how God is and how he works with his people. And in Hebrews, you have this double meaning in Hebrews 4 verse 12, where it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the both spoken and written word. It's the lived word, the person who is the word. It's all of these things that come to us and create the kind of imagery that God uh, is amongst his people. And the Bible actively paints these images and uh, the points that it makes. Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians 3 verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ live in you richly teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. There's this active engagement with what is the word of God and the richness of that word. And when we come to Psalm 78, um, it's the longest account uh, in in the the psalms of God's Uh, history with Israel, how he formed them, how they moved into the land that he had promised to give to them, and how they were established as a people um, after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. And so here you have um, rich imagery in the psalm. In verse 25 and 26, um, we see God saying this, he sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. By his power, he led out the south wind. God is seen as this uh, provider that the wind actually provides. And I think it's, uh, I'm not going to go into all the imagery of the wind at the moment, but here's the thing of of the, the rich imagery of the wind of God as it blows and provides food in abundance. Um As you go further on, this sort of dry desert landscape, people who've been used to living in sort of a settled urban area in Egypt, now foraging for food and water is scarce. And then there is this earthquake. The rocks are shattered. Psalm 78 verse 15 and 16 talks and he says, He split rocks open in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Again, the imagery, the water, the living water, the life that it brings back to them. And then further on, um, in this trackless wilderness where they are, where they've had no experience before of of moving through it, the, the compassion of God as this column of fire is ahead of his chosen people, guiding them towards the destination that he has for them. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night long with a fiery light. That's verse 14. There's this active sense of attention and uh, listening and receptivity before God's word, the language, the imagery that the book of Psalms, this particular Psalm 78 uses in terms of evoking the great wind from God the breaking open of the fountain of living waters in our hearts, inflaming us with a fire that cannot easily be quenched. All these things that the psalm kind of evokes for us. And so I want to then move on to a passage that I think has been um, maybe a bit misunderstood in years past. It's 1 Kings 19. And with that imagery in mind from Psalm 78... We find Elijah as he's come to Mount Sinai, and let me just say right at the beginning here that this is a story I think of of failure rather than of um, the the great man um, in all his glory on Mount Carmel after Mount Carmel where he's he's confronted all the prophets of Baal, and there's been this huge um outpouring of God's presence and power, and there's been a major demonstration of God being with him. Um, But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I think the story that we find in, in 1 Kings 19 is the flip side of that, and has a lot to say to us, I think, as we begin this period of Lent, and are reflecting on where we are as we approach Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. The story is set, let's just remember this, in about the ninth ninth century before Christ, which is then close on 3,000 years ago. And the history is that Israel at this stage is a divided kingdom. The two books of kings that we have, one and two kings in our Old Testament, recount a period after the reign of David and Solomon, a period of roughly 200 years where a unified Israelite nation under David and Solomon had been ruptured into two separate Hebrew kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we know from the hindsight of history that this ends in tragedy with the exile and the destruction of successive destruction of both of those Israelite nations. And the story of Elijah comes towards the end of his work in the northern kingdom of Israel. There's been a confrontation. The king of Israel, who's is Ahab, has thrown his lot in with uh, the, relig- the religious outlook of his Phoenician wife, Jezebel. And she worships her deities in the port city of Sidon. It's on the coast, very different to the landlocked um, Israel. And it's been—it's it, it, been Elijah's mission. Maybe one would even call it a life-threatening mission to stand against the idolatry of the royal couple, uh, and both of them were practicing it. And it heads towards this. Epic confrontation on Mount Carmel, where Elijah seeks to strike a decisive blow against the apostasy and rid Israel of all these um, false priests um, and so on. What happens next is that the anger, the power of the court, is turned directly on him, and he flees for his life. He's he's pursued with the threat of death. In his own words, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. That's verse 10 in 1 Kings 19. I think it's safe to say that in a way Elijah is terrified, and he takes refuge in the deserts to the south. And after spending many weeks crossing barren lands, the uh, angel of the Lord um, has been uh, looking after him as he brings him food and water. He heads back to the south and comes to Mount Sinai, Horeb, uh, relatively. It's spoken of in both ways in, in, in the Old Testament, but essentially Mount Sinai. The book of Exodus, is Sinai, is the place where God gave the law to Moses, established the covenant relationship that he had with Moses and with Israel. And that's the covenant that Elijah's been vehemently defending. And it's almost as if he's pilgrimaged back to this point, the beginning point uh, of the faith of Israel. He's he's almost come back to... um, The beginning stages of things again. And when he reaches the mountain, he spends a night in the cave in the mountainside, and God asks him in verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? And as I said, as we read it just a bit further earlier, he speaks of his zeal and Israelite's infidelity, the fear for his life, and then he says, I alone am left. Then comes one of the most extraordinary passages, I think, in the whole of all the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. Elijah is told to leave the cage cave and go out onto the mountain because God is about to pass by. Now, that God is about to pass by, there's, that's like an echo from the awe-inspiring moment in the book of Exodus when the Lord passes by Moses on exactly the same mountain, a moment that for Moses was one of gracious intimacy where God spoke his name to Moses, his chosen messenger. You can go and read in Exodus 34. And I think that echoes intentional, this passing by. So it's setting in people's minds this imagery of Moses on the mountain and intimacy. And then follows a series in Elijah's story, of three violent natural phenomena, wind, earthquake, and fire. Again, all of these reminiscent of the um, Old Testament um, narrative, the Exodus narrative. And in the Old Testament, these wind, earthquake, fire were frequently used as what is known as a theophany, a moment when God is present. In other words, where, where the sign of wind or earthquake or fire was usually meant that the creator himself, God himself, had stepped into his creation. He was present. You needed to be aware and something was going on. And so the first of these occurs, the strong wind that threatens to split the very mountain. But in verse 11, it says, the Lord was not in the wind. Then after the wind comes the earthquake, shattering the ground and the rocks and the mountain, but once again it says, the Lord was not in the earthquake, in verse 11. And finally it comes full set of three, and the earthquake is followed by fire, and once more the Lord is not in the fire, verse 12. Pause, just for a second here. The story of Elijah on the mountain is quite well known, and And can prevent us from, I think, recognizing the force of the story. Because you and I probably don't expect God to be manifest in wind or shattered rocks or fire. Partly because the story says that God wasn't. We've got so used to the fact that God is not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire that we just think, oh, that's normal. And that after the fire... Then after the the fire there's this sound of sheer silence. Let me say that again. After the fire, a sound of sheer silence. We're not contrasting this drama of some massive thing that's happened and then suddenly the sweet voice of God's presence. The old King James calls it the still small voice. But that's a mistranslation of actually what's there. And although it's lovely evocative poetry, it misunderstands what's being said here, with unfortunate consequences, I think. So let's say this very carefully. What the text boldly and clearly says here is that God is absent. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, and he's silent. And to help us better understand the force, I think, of these three non signs and the silence, we turn to Psalm 18. I'm going to read a small portion of Psalm 18, verse 7 to 10, in the New International Version. It says, The earth trembled and quaked, the foundation of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, fire consuming Came out of his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down, dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared with the wings of the wind. This imagery, rich imagery in Psalm eighteen, is talking about um a response to verse four and five where it says, the cords of death entangled me, torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. What the psalmist is saying is that he, like Elijah, fears for his life. But what follows for the psalmist is this divine display of pyrotechnics where there is the saving presence of all of God's act. And what are they? The wind, the earthquake, and the fire. And these are specifically put there to say, this is how God presently reaches out and reaches down. In verse 17, it says, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. The reader of the Old Testament, because they were so well versed in the Psalms, would have instantly known that this was what was there. And what the contrast is, with this Elijah story, is that the central character is missing. God is missing. Elijah stands on the mountain where his prophetic predecessor, Moses, was uh, uh, had received the law. But whereas Moses in the Exodus experienced the wind of God as it blew strongly across the Red Sea to part the seas for the people to walk through on dry land, or... Um, Moses had just experienced wind. Moses, I mean Elijah, had just experienced wind. Moses had led the Israelites through the desert, and when they needed a drink for life, God had smashed the rock, and water had come out, delivering them from death. Whereas with Elijah, it was just the senseless smashing of the mountain against itself. And again with Moses, with the flame that burnt the bush and was the, the, the impetus for the um, setting free of, of Israel from all the injustice of, of the Egyptians, Elijah just sees fire. And then the sound of sheer silence. I think Elijah experiences in this moment what um, Amos will later call a famine of the word of God. Here's the thing that I'd never seen before. When you read 1 Kings uh, 19, this whole passage that I am talking about is framed by verse 9 and 10 and the end of verse 13 again in 14. Listen to this carefully because it's actually quite remarkable. 9 and 10 says, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then you have all the earthquake fire, uh, uh, wind, earthquake, fire, silence. And then it says in verse 13, Then the voice came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's identical. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Also identical. This, The drama of this passage is framed with what is called an inclusio. It, it's, it's got like a parenthesis at the beginning and the end. The same two verses at the beginning and at the end. Exactly the same words where God says to Elijah, Hey, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, um, I've been trying to do all this stuff, but now I'm the only one left. And at the end, God says to him again, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, Oh, I've been trying to do your work, but I'm the only one left. What seems to have happened, and I think this is a clue, this, this framing of the story, which is so significant, is that the prophet has run away from what's been going on in Israel. In other words, he's in a sense, he's passed judgment on what's there. He says, look, I'm fed up. There's nothing. I've tried so hard. I've been doing this all my life. I'm now at the end of my rope. I'm the only one that's left. And by returning to the holy mountain, to Sinai, he... kind of symbolically almost undoes the journey Israel has done, undertaken from Moses and Joshua into the Promised Land. And he casts aside, in a sense, the possibility of there being anyone else who's so unfaithful to God. He's run away from Israel every bit as much as Jonah ran away from going to Nineveh to preach God's uh, salvation to them. And I think this is why the signs on the mountain are empty. That God is not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire and there is just deep silence. God clearly rejects Elijah's judgment on Israel because God is actually active in Israel throughout this whole period. God, Elijah reads what's going on there from his perspective. Because, yes, he has been having a tough time. But God very bluntly then turns him around and sends him straight back. In verse 15, he says, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, and then he goes on to tell him what to do. And then he says, yet reserve 7,000 in Israel. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. He says to Elijah, in no uncertain terms, there's a whole host of people who in their own way have been faithful to keep my covenant. Go back. You need to go back. And so Elijah goes back. And I think as we come to Lent, there's a parable here for us. Um, Our beginning place is not very often so different from what we find in Elijah. And I'm inviting you, I think, to look at the story of Elijah and find yourself in it as we enter a period of reflection on the death and the resurrection of Jesus and our place in the story that God has in bringing that salvation to a world. And we may not have had to publicly defend our religion in a state that seeks to nullify it. But our context is not that different. And I think if we look at where we are in terms of our Christian faith, in the kind of culture that we live in, this Western world, and the regular exposure we have to things that diminish who Jesus is and what his people are, then I think very often our vision of who we are and our vision of what God has for us and Christ's leading for us is often diminished like like Elijah's is. And we need to reimagine ourselves back into the story. And God is saying, I think, to us at this Lent, pilgrimage back towards where the action is. Don't run back. Don't pull away. Don't feel sorry for yourself. If you go back to where you are, are safe, you might find that there is just silence there. And I think this Lent is a call for us to step back into the story that God has for all of us. There may be all kinds of things that we have to confront, but the God of the mighty wind, the God of the earthquake, the God of fire will be with us as Psalm 18 says. And then what happened after Easter? The disciples pulled away and they were praying together. And then all of these signs again appeared in the early life of the church in Acts. The wind, the shaking of buildings, the fire. As we enter this period of Lent, Let's place ourselves back into the story that God has for us. God bless. I'll see you at the Chateau Cafe on Sunday.